so much. It's first the courage, the candor, the transparency. Some of the writing is very raw, which makes it so real. What also stood out is that there was such resilience throughout. There were some really deeply moving moments in the lives of our authors, but each one took this as an opportunity to rise above and to come back even stronger. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so delighted to invite you to a very special edition of the My Fourth Act podcast. It's special for a bunch of reasons because I have some incredible playmates and together we wrote an anthology of very personal essays that we are very proud of called The Difference. And I've invited some of them to be here and talk about this book. The subtitle is, it's called The Difference Essays on Loss, Courage, and Personal Transformation. And this book began like with this very simple idea, like what if we could ask some people who are amazing humans who do extraordinary work in the world and literally have impact on millions of people to reflect on their own lives and think about if they had to pinpoint one thing that made the biggest difference in their lives, move them forward, transform them, what might that be? So that was the premise of this book. I didn't want to do this alone. So I live just outside of Miami. And I decided my very good friend and ridiculously gifted human, Rosemary Ravenal, to be a co-editor. And she said yes right away. And I want to introduce you to her in a moment. But Rosemary built an incredible career as a TV host, news commentator, spokesperson, and corporate communications leader before she became the premier bilingual public speaker and executive speaker coach in the United States. So we dreamt this book up together and we invited writer people who we adore and knew to be really good writers. And then their writing came in and we did not know what they were going to submit. So Rosemary, what was it like to receive these eight essays that came in based on a very simple invitation. It was, well, first of all, Akeem, this is such a delight to actually be talking about the realization of this wonderful project that's been in development for a bit over a year. Yeah. I would say that it's, you have something in mind, right? The genesis of the idea, that nugget of inspiration, and then, and then something different happens. You get this magnificent thing that you weren't expecting it to be so awesome because in truth, the design of this is not our writing. We're inviting great voices, thinkers, people who really have deep lives to tell us their stories. And collectively, we've assembled such a beautiful collection. So I would say it's almost like we you can have a where we're expecting a baby 
right? We <laughs> went to the nine months and then the baby came. The baby was <laughs> the most extraordinary baby. <laughs> Are you saying you and I made a beautiful baby together? Is that what you're saying, Rosemary? my friend. We did. <laughs> we did. With, with, with a lot of help from lots of gifted people. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to. I want to mention one thing that surprised me when I read the essays that came in, and maybe invite you to also think of one thing that surprised you, because the subtitle for this book is the subtitle because of what you all, our authors, wrote about. And there's a lot of writing about loss, different kinds of loss, and how facing the loss. Instead of us getting stuck in the loss, it was the catalyst towards another phase, if I use the metaphor from this podcast, another act in our lives. But it, it, it required facing loss and moving loss. And I had not expected that much writing about it. Rosemary, mm-hmm. what stands out for you just from the themes of the book? So much. It's first the courage, the candor, the transparency. Some of the writing is very raw, which makes it so real. What also stood out is that there was such resilience throughout. There were some really deeply moving moments in the lives of our authors, but each one took this as an opportunity to rise above and to come back even stronger. And I think that that is one of the lessons you can't teach that to someone. It comes from wisdom. It comes from lived experience. And that's what I, I felt was such the unifying thread here, that you know, there's, there were moments described by our authors that could have been crushing. They could have been devastating. They could have pretty much sort of put us in darkness. But everyone rose up and flew even higher. Beautiful. We have three of the authors here on the podcast, and uh, you'll get to meet three of them. I'd like to start with Dr. Lynn Maureen Hurdle. I have to confess right away, over 30 years ago, Lynn was my boss at a social services agency in Manhattan. And Lynn was the best boss I have ever had. But let me give you the official data here. Dr. Lynn Maureen Hurdle is a communication expert and conflict resolution strategist a diversity, equity, and inclusion facilitator, and a writer. This just scratches the surface of everything that Lynn does. Lynn, when you got this invitation Mm. to write an essay, you ended up writing about a phrase, I love the term, about breaking culture. Did you immediately know that that was the thing you wanted to write about, or how did you settle on that as the story that you wanted to tell? Yeah, I immediately knew that that was what I was wanting to write about. It was the, it came at a time when it was such a difficult time in my life. And it was the first time in my life when I had experienced real difficulty, real loss. And as it has turned out to be a pattern in my life, this several things happening at once that were major events in my life. And I had to navigate all of those things. And then I used them to really change the way I was living and the way I was working. So as soon as you said that, I I know exactly, exactly (laughs) what I'm writing about here. Yes. But break it down for us. 
I want to invite you to be very specific. What are some yeah. examples of culture yeah. breaking, like yeah. very specific so, things you had to break? So I'm African-American. That's I define myself. And I can tell you that there's lots of rules in our culture, as there are in many cultures, I know. <laughs> and in our culture, I grew up strict, straight up African-American and were told the rules a lot. And so there were a lot of rules around parenting in particular. And so what I write about in the essay is getting this diagnosis of infertility and how devastating that was for me. And then at that same time, uh, my mom, actually, they didn't even know the diagnosis. And I watched her wither away and then eventually die from the reoccurrence of breast cancer. And those two things really created a time in my life when I had to look at, well, what am I getting from this experience as terrifying and difficult as it was? And what I got was the opportunity to look at how I wanted to parent. And I never liked a lot of the rules, but before I got into conflict resolution, I wasn't a parent. I, I didn't know. I figured I'm going to go along the way they I was raised. That's how I'm going to raise my children. And then when this happened, I decided, you know what? I know enough about conflict resolution to do something very different. And that's what I'm going to do because I know uh, as much as I love my mom, she was also going to have something to say about how how I raised my <laughs> son. And so that voice was no longer going to be in my ear. And while other voices were, they didn't have the weight that she would have had in my life. And so I chose to, to do something different, like talk to my sons rather than hit them or spank them. Like, like that was really something that uh, I got a lot of flack for. And, uh, but I thought that listen, these are intelligent beings, <laughs> you know, I know that they're babies and they're toddlers and they're children, but I believe that they can understand a lot more than we give them credit for. And so one of those things was like having family meetings and really listening and talking and understanding what was what was hurting them. What what were the things that they kind of didn't like about the way we were parenting, my husband and I, and, and what were the things they would want to see? And then helping them to understand why we wanted to and were going to do things in a way that maybe they didn't always like, but that they could have a voice. That is completely different from how I was raised. Believe me. Um, you know, I, I got slapped for spilling the milk. I got spanked for talking back. I mean, and talking back was really nothing more than me saying what I felt in the moment, but that definitely goes against the culture. So for me, breaking culture isn't saying everything we do in this culture is bad. It's saying, here's the things that don't resonate with me, and I'm going to choose to do them differently. And one of the things that I find so powerful in your piece is that so the bittersweet part of life is that your mother dying. Yep. There was sadness with it and there was liberation with it, you know, yeah. and, and both things were true. And as I just, as you describe your parenting style, I'm going, shoot, that's still pretty radical for many families, regardless, <laughs> oh, yes. regardless of what culture you come from. That's right. As you're describing it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's right. And I never expected the liberation part. So that was the surprise for me that there could actually, because the devastation, that was the first major loss in my life. And and to lose her before I became a parent, the devastation yeah. was real. Um, and I did go to a depressed place for a little while. And then I just really recognized the light there. Like, here's the opportunity. And it isn't betraying my love for my mother to say, I'm going to use being liberated at this moment to change something in my life that's pretty major. Yeah. Rosemary, I invite you to have a chat with our friend Carl Fix. And maybe why don't you introduce him to us first? And then uh, let's learn oh. about Carl. Oh, Carl. Well, Carl, yours is the first essay uh, in, uh, in the section about loss, which is the, the lead into the anthology. And you've had such vivid experiences and you detail them with such a sense of uh, of almost like a, a realistic approach, and and no wonder because you you I'm going to introduce you by by profession in a moment, but I wanted to say that you you kick off with a quote from Isaac Dinesen that that says all sorrows can be born if you tell the story about them, mm-hmm. and that's that's I think really captures the essence of this collection. Yeah. Right? We're all telling stories about our sorrows. So from what I understand from your story. And it is, again, it's written so exquisitely. It's that you, you started to accumulate number of, of losses in your life. You were an attorney by profession. You lost a good friend in, in who disappeared in the, in the woods on a, on a, on a camping expedition. You lost your mother. Uh, you lost someone else. You lost your ability to, to run, which was a passion of yours. You, you no longer, for physical reasons, were able to. And you just kept, kept going with multiple, multiple losses of one kind or another. Yet you emerged stronger. So tell us, tell us your secret. How was, what was the process of you then taking this, this collective sense of loss and then using it to thrive? Well, thank you, uh, Rosemary, for that. And thank you, everyone, for being here today. It's, it's very meaningful. The Denison quote that I started with is something I started when my mother passed away, which is in the book. I did her eulogy. And that is how I opened the eulogy, because that was the only way that I could handle, uh, in fact, doing that eulogy without uh, becoming a mess. So what I did is I told stories about my mom in that eulogy, and um, I found that to be very powerful. So I, that's how I wanted to kick this off. Also with the disclaimer in the book, and one I'll make here, that my sorrows and my losses are indeed not unique. Uh, while the facts may be a little different, and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on those in a moment, everybody uh, suffers loss. We are all dealt losses. And um, the way I handled them, frankly, Rosemary, was to just say, okay, this does not make me unique. This does not make me different. Not There's no, you, you know, woe is me here. It's, okay, we've got these coming at us fast, or I do, and how do I deal with them? The circumstances, it was my brother-in-law who disappeared at the very moment my mother was dying in the hospital. So those two things happen at once, which is really not something you plan for. I have a distinct recollection. My wife had four brothers. 
one disappeared and two of them were out there looking for him. I was in the hospital while my mom was dying. My sister's a registered nurse by trade. And she said, mom's got about 48 to 72 hours and that's it. So a brother-in-law out in Arizona called me and said, I need X, Y, and Z. And I said to him, I'll get back to you right now. My mother's dying. I need to attend to that. So it was really a, a trick, for lack of a better word, that I learned in law school was to kind of um, silo things. And I was able to silo these losses and deal with one at a time, which made it easier to bear. And then they kind of kept coming. So it was just, what am I going to do with these? Am I going to run and hide or am I going to kind of repurpose and repackage them and use them to kind of get on a new stage? And that's what I did. Right. And then you also stopped practicing law, right? And that was another big loss in your life that defined you. How did you rebound from that? Well, um, I had been for some time, I I left the practice of law in 2013. I went into philanthropy for four years, back to the practice of law in 17. And the the rose came off or the bloom came off the rose shortly thereafter, but I kept at it. And as I mentioned in the book, a very good friend, a partner of mine and a mentor by the name of Dan, he was just a great guy. And in March of 21, died in his sleep. And that was kind of a wake-up call. I thought, wow, Dan is gone. And I was 57 at the time, the very age my brother-in-law was when he disappeared. And I started to think, what's going to happen if I stay at this, if I stay at the practice of law, am I going to simply disappear? Because we've all seen in our respective professions, those that, that hang on to the very end. And they're not really living, they're simply existing. And I've never wanted to simply exist. I've always wanted to live and I've always wanted to experience things and meet people and do different things. So Dan's death, frankly, in the dark of night, much like Dr. Hurdle's essay uh, about permission, I was riding and I ride prolific um, miles on my bike and I was riding my bike and I thought, well, that's really what Dan's death was. Aside from the loss of a very close friend, it was almost as if he were giving me permission to move on to something else. And that's what I did, although I wasn't sure what it was going to be. Thank you. I'm very happy to introduce a third contributor, uh, Melissa Smith. And like with Lynn Hurdle, Melissa and I met in the 1990s in New York. I need to say that. She's an extraordinary writer, but I met Melissa before some of the powerful things she did that define her public persona right now, and that she writes about in her stunning essay called How Boxing Uncaged Me. So Melissa is the author of A History of Women's Boxing, the first definitive history of the sport. She's a global female boxing authority and the co-host of the War Room Sports Podcast. And she's involved in the in the boxing industry in many, many other formal ways. This is just the tip of it. Hey, Melissa. Hey, Akeem. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be on the podcast and to be with my fellow authors and with you and Rosemary. Yeah. So 
Melissa, you and I are the same age. We met when we were in our 40s. And in your 40s, you decided to go to a boxing gym and seriously train as a boxer at a time when many people, not, not even, even including men, might say, like, shit, I'm way too old to do that. So w- would you briefly tell us how you got to the moment when you walked through the doors at Gleason's Gym in Brooklyn, a famous gym, and decided <laughs> to train? Well, you know, boxing, as I talk about in the essay, boxing has been a lifelong passion as a as an observer, if you will, even from when I was a little girl watching kids fight on the street. But I was always attracted to the the formality of, of the science of boxing. Um, it just took me to my 40s to recognize that I could actually do it as a girl, that it wasn't a gendered sport thing that I can actually walk into a boxing gym. And having gone through a lot of experiences in life where I really felt uh, kicked down and was having, finding that the toll of those experiences always seemed to be taken through my body. And that once I was able to cross that threshold, I found that I was able to find a connection from the physical, the emotional, the intellectual aspects of my life that helped me integrate those feelings. And I was thinking about hitting a heavy bag and the formality of learning the process. The discipline also gave me permission to let go of the things that had held me back across a lifetime. Yeah. Give us a snapshot of being in the gym because you and working with a trainer. Uh, it's almost a cliche to say this, but we get this from your essay. You had a some quirky <laughs> boxing type some, <laughs> who yes. was supporting you and training Melissa Smith, who walked into Gleason's gym. Like, give yeah. us a little snapshot of what that so looked like. So, my my first trainer was a man named Johnny Greenwich. Um, he had he had been training, you know, for like 30 years. He'd been a trainer for at least 30 years. I guess I knew him in his 60s and had boxed earlier than that. And we found that we we both shared a love of 1950s jazz, which was awesome. So we had this little touch point. But it became very clear fairly quickly that he only had about three things to say. He had stories about Miles Davis and the pianist Winton. Kelly on on sort of replay, and his uh, his lessons on boxing consisted of if you're going to hit it, hit it hard, and I don't want to see no pity pat. So <laughs> that became the basis of training. No pity pat. So we started out where you know just very calmly trying to learn how to throw a jab and how to throw a straight right and all the the basic repertoire of punches, and also coming to grips with the idea that what I had thought of as the perfect one-two that my uncle Mel Mel had taught me at the age of 12 was, in fact, not the way boxing was supposed to look. So I kind of had to undo all of that great sense of myself that I had carried off uh, for 30 years. But uh, gradually, you know, I began to learn. And then he put me onto the heavy bag. And that's when the real work began. Because what I hadn't understood is how much I held myself back from my own power. Mm -hmm. And there's something about 
hitting a bag with somebody yelling at you going, I don't want to see no pity pat. You hit it, you hit it hard. You hit it, you mean it. That just broke through my own reluctance to accept who I was and accept my own sense of my being. And by hitting it and hitting it hard, it was like I was actually at war with myself. I was the heavy bag. I was the one getting pummeled. I was the one breaking apart. All the scars, all the emotional scars, all the self-doubt, all the self-hatred, all those things that accumulate that in my life, I had always kept it sort of like up in my throat rather than really, as we say, sinking down into your legs, you know, really sitting on your punches. And by gradually doing that work with Johnny in my ear screaming, I don't want to see no pit pat. I really began to learn how to hit, how to create my own sense of power. And through that, how to have a cathartic experience. I There were days I'd be on the, the heavy bag. I just tears streaming down my face as I kept hitting and punching and going through the routines just as this cathartic release of experience. And even now, you know, 25 years later, I will find if I'm working out, suddenly the tears start to leak and it's like, oh, I've been holding on to something. There's, there's something I haven't been letting go of. And it's that experience of power uh, that I found was the, the driver to that. Thank you, Melissa. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Rosemary. Yes. Your essay, in your essay, you explore your relationship to your, um, I hope I say this right, your Cuban past that you know primarily from exile because you left Cuba as a young girl. And we're not, we don't want to delve too far into your essay, but if you had to summarize, getting into that story of not being in the country where you were born, uh, and putting it down into in paper or just the old metaphor, but, you know, on the computer. Uh, what are some insights that you had as you wrote that down? It was, to use the word that's been used before, but accurate is cathartic. It was, it was a revelation for me. I'd never done this before. Let me put it this way. It, where... It's been 60 years since I've been in this country. So so the memory of Cuba was for many, many decades, really, really faint and very distant. But in the last, let's say, 15, 20 years or so, I've started to become more, much more aware of the, of the richness of having those ties, of living in culture, and to have a sense of identity that I had suppressed for, for decades. There was something always nagging. There was a sense of displacement, but I didn't know what it was. When I moved from New York to Miami, by the way, I was in exile, like many who came on a plane in the, in the 60s, but we settled in New York, which was unusual. A lot of the, of the uh, people fleeing Cuba settled in South Florida. So we 
lived in a very Anglo-Saxon community. I forgot Spanish and so forth. So I reconnected with my roots after moving to South Florida about 20 years ago. So that's when it all started. But it was something I had, I had almost like it was nebulous. It was just behind the screen. As I started to write this, the clarity of the detail, the clarity down to the perspiration beads on, on someone's forehead, uh, to the sounds, to the smells inside that waiting room waiting to board the plane. Uh, it, it just, it was, it was almost as if I had undergone a hypnotic session where all these little details, these moments came to life. And it was, it was fascinating. It has released me to the point where I want to dig more. And I do want to go back to Cuba at some point when the political climate is right. Yeah. Thank you. Because we're the co-editors. We each were inspired to write something as well. And my essay is called When I Was Willing to Try Anything. And, uh, you know, I was diagnosed as, a, as being HIV positive in 1988, very early in the time. And my, my prognosis was not good. You know, I was seeing an AIDS, one of the big AIDS doctors in Manhattan. I was told I had two years to live. And I took myself to a pretty funky, esoteric place in the Arizona desert where I was for six weeks. And the woman who ran it, her name was Reverend Mona, did a lot of body detoxing with us. And I thought I went, was going there to try to heal my body. But what happened, it was I really crossed into a different experience of knowing spirit, spirit that existed in that land in very, very specific ways. And once I learned once we cross into that awareness. We can't ever go back. It's there because we know it's real. And part of what happened, and this was transformational for me, at the end of the day, Mona did something that resembled a vision quest with us and had a whole bunch of visions. Yeah. And uh, one was very specific. I kept seeing a white house on a cliff overlooking an ocean. It kept showing up. It was very clear to me that this was a real place and not a symbolic metaphor. And six months later, I left my life in New York and I lived on a white house overlooking a cliff on the small island of Tobago. And I became a windsurfer and I became a pretty good windsurfer. And I wasn't sure why I was going there other than I had that vision. In hindsight, I realized I was there to work out some other stuff of my personal story. And once I figured that out, I couldn't wait to leave that beautiful island and continue somewhere else, you know. But that was the beauty of sort of jumping into literally the unknown. Before I was in Arizona, I wouldn't have been able to find Tobago on the map. And there I was. Rosemary, we have a couple of other really – we're going to talk in a moment some more with Melissa and, and Carl and, and Lynn – but would you like to give us a quick snapshot of a couple of the other essays? Because we have so many different themes around what makes it, what made a difference. Let me give you a, a snapshot. Let me start with uh, Betsy Guerra. Betsy is uh, a psychotherapist and author. She's based in, in Miami. And the, the tragic death of her little girl 10 years ago, actually, it was in 2013, uh, that changed the course of her life, and that inspired her to start a counseling practice for families suffering from similar devastating loss. 
And she, in this essay, chronicles in great detail, moment by moment, the day her daughter, whose name was Fufi, drowned in the family pool. Really, uh, very powerful. Then Alyssa Alexander, her story explodes with, with joy as she unleashed and embraced her many talents and different facets of her identity because she's a gospel singer, a performer, a keynote speaker, instructional designer. So she said, I don't need to take one path. I'll choose them all. And so that's a joyful essay. Then we have Caroline de Posada, who is the uh, Cuban, uh, but also uh, lives in South Florida. She is the only daughter of a world-renowned author, speaker named Joaquim de Posada, who you might know from Don't Eat the Marshmallow series. He traveled all over the world. She grew up in the fold of the world of motivational speakers of her father's world. She became a successful attorney on her own until her father passed, and then she was compelled to fill her shoes. But she wasn't comfortable with that. She felt it wasn't genuine. So she charted her own course and uh, as a motivational speaker of a different kind, and she now has a community called CORE, which is focused on mind-body approach to wellness. And she helps dozens of predominantly women really find find their own stride. Then we have Tom Garcia, who was an established chiropractor until he became the caregiver for a good friend whose death prompted him to live the life of a shaman uh, who facilitates fire ceremonies. And then lastly, Mark J. Silverman uh, was a star salesperson and with a storybook, Family Life. He succumbed to many addictions and he went from homeless to millionaire back. And he learned profound self-love in the process of coming back to himself. Thank you, Rosemary. So I want to open it up to anybody who wants to speak. As Rosemary gave us a sense of the other essays, the authors that are here, what is something that really resonated with you or spoke to you in, in an essay other than your own? I'll say that uh, Carl's essay... <laughs> really hit me square in the eyes. There's a a refrain through Carl's piece where he quotes from the great Dylan Thomas's poem, Do Not Go Gently Into That Good Night. And that particular poem is one I have loved across a lifetime, but also had shared with my father. When he died not so long ago, it was something that I had thought of about him in the last year or so of his life. So as I said, it really resonated with me. But more to the point, I felt that in in carrying through that poem as sort of subtext to the experience of loss and then finding himself, it was a way of finally not only listening to your friend Dan, Carl, uh, giving you permission, if you will, to move on with your life, but more to the point, this notion of you giving yourself permission to live the rest of your life in a way where at the end, you could know that you had gone through all those stages of the poem and did not go gentle, that you had lived your best life on your own terms. And that, as I said, really carried me through a a lot of the rest of the book as sort of a lens or what many of the other experiences were of, of the authors. Yeah. Carl. Well, thank you, Melissa. 
Dr. Gatta, having lost her daughter, there, if I could, there are two lines in her chapter, if you would allow me to say them. And, and she says, quote, I felt my own heart flatlining as the medical staff exited the room in slow motion, leaving my daughter's lifeless body behind. I wanted to scream, but I had no voice. I wanted to wake up, but I was not sleeping. I wanted to die, but my heart kept beating, end quote. As the mother of two, excuse me, the father, uh, strike that, it's the father of two <laughs> daughters, I can't fathom this loss. Again, the losses I described, we, we all lose loved ones. But my daughters, I have a very special relationship with them. I've been a constant presence in their life, as, my, as has my wife. I'm very proud of that. I'm very close with them. And losing one of them, to me, would be unfathomable. So what Dr. Guerra describes, and it was able to turn it into something incredible, really kind of blows me away. And as I read this, I thought, you know, ChatGPT is a thing now. And I thought ChatGPT could never replicate those words. <laughs> they just couldn't. Uh, they're just, it was palpable. When I read that, I had to put the book down. I just needed to take a break. So that stirred me deeply. Thank you, Carl. I'll throw it to you, Rosemary. Any, any particular essay that touched something in you? And I know it's not a fair question because you and I have read all of them in great detail, but I'm going to throw it at you anyway. All of them. All of them. Because, look, we've all been there just in, to some extent or, or another. And it, maybe it's not the exact same situation and circumstances, but the but the pain, the human, uh, just say rawness, is is something that I think is there's something for everyone. It is the tapestry that we all live. So I found that it was as I was reading, and then rereading, I found more of myself in everyone's essays. To say that you know the more unique we are, we're still no different. You now we we all have very very similar uh, paths. It's what we do with it. And it's been inspiring to see that, that again, that resilience, the way all of our authors have picked up the pieces and made their best lives from that. I took something and take something from each piece, but I want to just mention my, my reaction to uh, Tom Garcia's essay, who is a chiropractor turned shaman, as, again, as an out gay man, what moved me so much, this was a clearly heterosexual man who belongs to a men's group and had a strong bond with another man, a brotherly bond. And he and his wife and family took in a friend who was slowly moving toward death. And that experience just was so moving to me because it was so entirely selfless. But also, you know, we could sort of stop there and bury somebody, but how that propelled Tom into going out into the woods, seeking solitude, connecting with nature more deeply, discovering the power of fire, and finding another part of himself as a friend was dying. And the part that really then moved me is have the courage to follow through. And he left his chiropractic practice 
And he <laughs> so came out in the world as a shaman and healer who does flyer rituals, which to some people could be pretty far out stuff. And he had the support of his wife and his family, which is just uh, extraordinary. You know, and there are three essays in the end of the book in a section called um, Personal Transformation, where we reference, so going through a dark night of the soul. And Mark Silverman really went through his own version. I feel like I went through it, my version, and Tom Garcia certainly did. Uh, and that touched me deeply. I have a yes. question. Yes. Of course, I would like for my own benefit, because I struggled when it came time to find my story. Because I tried this, I tried that, da, da, and then it was it just wasn't some, it, every one of the possible essays that I would have written would have been provocative. But to me, it sounded like, oh, three divorces, ah, eh, that's nothing, eh, you know, it's, it's fine. Oh, near life experience, ah, eh, people have been through that. So it, I kept disqualifying each moment, difference-making moment. I'd like to know, was it obvious to each of you the, the moment that we invited you to, to, to contribute? Was that clear? Did you know exactly what you had to write about? I, I would say I did in the sense that uh, I think of it like almost like a song line. You know, we, we have a trajectory through life and we have a set of experiences and we have different ways of thinking through that what motivates us along that that trajectory or what thing ties it together. And when I was thinking about something that made the difference or that was that profoundly transformational, it immediately clicked because I knew it had to do with facing truth, facing fear, facing release. And that was that storyline, that thread that arced through my life of not having been able to really connect the pieces. And until I was able to finally let myself go on a heavy bag. And by doing that, it gave me the story. It gave me the future because it gave me a way of knowing that I could pay as I go. I don't need to accumulate such a heavy credit card debt and just spend my life paying off the VIG, if you will, rather than going, being present and taking things as they come. Yeah. I, I would also... Uh say that it, it did come to me. It, it came, I actually went back before today's uh, uh, podcast and I looked at some notes that I had made initially when Achim approached me and I, I wrote a few times peat fire. Like to me, it was like a smoldering peat fire that was beneath the surface. And what do we do with that? But one of the things that made all of these losses that I had one of the what made it easier to pivot and and do what I'm doing now is being a lawyer. It was a it was a wonderful career. It was a phenomenal education, but it never defined me. I was never hung up on my title. I didn't need to be called attorney. It was I was simply Carl Fix, and I always knew that I was so much more than attorney. Attorney was my profession. I was a husband. I I, I am a husband. I am a father. I am a friend. I'm I'm. A lot of different things. Lawyers just was one of them. That was my profession. So it was a little easier to pivot because I wasn't, my entire existence wasn't wrapped up in this identity. And again, we've used the word cathartic and that was indeed cathartic. And I'm grateful that I didn't allow it to consume me and define me. Thank you. Our hope is as authors that 
we didn't just have our own cathartic experience. We we trust that it will stimulate some hopefully inspirational and powerful reflection for you as well and possibly inspire some risk-taking in your life, whatever that might look like. Uh, Rosemary, where would you like to direct people who are interested in this book? Oh, we have several places. First, you can visit the website, thedifference-book.com, and there you'll see more profiles of our authors and excerpts. Then you can go to Amazon, and in Amazon, you can download the Kindle version, and then you can pre-order the paperback. So those are, those are three actions you can take, and then you can, you can follow any of us and, uh, and stay abreast of, of the launch plans for the book. So paperback is uh, $12.99, and June 12th is the official launch date. So we are excited to, to generate a lot of, of interest and comments and, and communication with all of you. Again, it's the difference book. Let me start again. The difference hyphen book.com is the website. Thank you, Rosemary. And uh, we look forward to hearing back from all of you. So thank you for listening. We invite you to buy the book. If you like it, you know, leave some comments on Amazon and reviews and get back to us. You have the website connection for every author on the website. I know you'll be inspired by them and just, just reach out to them. And bye for now. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.